This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button portion stops here. Plug the radio in. everyone. Once again, it's time for Evidence for Faith, the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program, where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true. I'm Kirk Hastings, and today's topic that we're going to talk about is world your worldview, how you view the world around you. Okay, and of course here to discuss that topic with us is Keith Kendricks, who is an apologist with a master's degree in Christian apologetics from Biola University. Hi, Keith. Hi, Kirk. How are you today? Good. Okay, before we get started, uh, I have a little, uh, kind of a little commercial here I'd like to do. Uh, there's a really interesting conference going on in Charlotte, North Carolina this coming October. October. It's a Christian apologetics conference that I thought our listeners would be interested in. It's uh, produced by the Southern Evangelical Seminary. The dates are October 28th and 29th, and it's being held at the Northside Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. The theme of the conference is Why Christianity? And I'm looking at the uh, advertisement here, and it sounds like it's going to be really interesting. They have a, a great lineup of speakers, including... William Lane Craig, who we've spoken about and referred to a number of times on this program. Josh McDowell, another uh, biggie in the apologetics arena. William Dembski, Gary Habermas, uh, Mike Lacona. Did I say that right? I hope. Yep, that's right. Richard Howell, Frank Turek, and uh, and more. So it sounds like a fantastic conference. And uh, uh, yeah. I would encourage anybody from this area who can get down there at the end of October to uh, take this in, because I'm sure it'll be fantastic. Yeah, it does sound like a great conference. I'm definitely going to go myself, so I'm going to try and take as many people from my church with me as I can. Yeah. And Gary Habermas has been a guest on the show before, and a couple of the other people may be coming in future shows. Who knows? Yes, I'd love to get a couple of these people on here. We'll see what we can do about that. That's right. I'm going to work on it. So you can give us a firsthand report, uh, Keith, when you get back. Oh, that'll be great. Yeah, there are a lot of courses, classes to be to go to. This is the largest conference that's just strictly on apologetics. So it's a little different from the Evangelical Philosophical Society meeting that I go to right. once a year. This one's specifically just on apologetic issues, but there are thousands of people that attend every year. So this, right. it'll be good. Yeah. Uh, I can say that uh, one of the major influences when I first became a Christian on me was Josh McDowell. I read his Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Excellent book. And uh, that convinced me that Christianity was true. (laughs) Yep, and we can still recommend that book today. It's been revised, also updated for today. Yes. And an excellent book on the evidence for the reliability of the New Testament. Yes, it's full of historical evidences for the Bible and uh, why, be, why we believe the Bible is an accurate historical document. And he actually did it in two volumes, and now the, uh, the version that's out now, it's called The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, 
is a combination of the two volumes in one book, and it's like 760 pages long, I think. Yeah, it's daunting. It's A lot of it is really for reference, but a lot of it can be read and very interesting. Yes. Anybody that tells you there's no evidence that the Bible is historically accurate, just hand them one of these 10-pound books. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Let's uh, move on to some other things here. Uh, Keith, I understand you have a, uh, an email from one of our regular uh, writers that you would like to deal with. Kalia right. did, has did written that, us again? Uh, yeah, Kalia is her name, but you should have a copy of it also, right? I have it right here. Wonderful. Would you like me to read it? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, as a little background on this, uh, she sent us a couple of emails. Uh, she's interested in evolution and the difference between microevolution and macroevolution. And uh, she writes us here her uh, email. I'm trying to see the date that this was sent. I don't see it on here, but it was just recently. Um, yeah, she had actually challenged us that we did not understand evolution. Right. And she tried to explain to us the difference between micro and macro evolution, and she got it wrong. Right. So she actually didn't understand the definitions of these types of evolution. So we explained that to her in the first letter. And so then now she's responding to our answer to her about whether or not we actually understand evolution very well. Right. She and says... She, well, she yeah, says, uh, let me read this a little bit. Um, she says, you contend that I do not understand the theory of evolution by saying that I got a wolf-like creature confused with a wolf? Yeah, and that's actually my response to her. Oh, that's your response. I'm sorry. I have the wrong letter printed out here then. Well, it's Do you have right, her original there? Yeah, it's right below. Uh, uh, your dated. original didn't print out on my printer. Okay. Well, <laughs> sorry about me, that, uh, folks. Let me give everybody what she said then. Okay. So she says that you use the analogy of a wolf-like creature turning into a whale. Now, just for those who maybe missed the last episode where we read her letter or read the response to her email, we use that as an example of macroevolution because that's a typical example that's given by evolutionists of a large-scale change over a long period of time is the example of this wolf-like mammal that slowly evolved into the whales we see in the ocean today. Okay. So she says uh, that you use this shows that you are not understanding the theory of evolution. Wolves and whales evolved from a common ancestor, which she has in bold, not a wolf. Okay, so I guess she just didn't understand what wolf-like means. Okay. Of course, we were referring to the common ancestor of the wolf and the whale. Right. She goes on to say, I have listened to quite a few of your episodes through your podcast feed, and I have heard your cracks about evolution not being true because sunlight doesn't give us superpowers no matter how long you sunbathe. <laughs> that, uh, I would agree with that. <laughs> Yeah, and she doesn't explain how that is a problem, since obviously you don't gain power by sunbathing. It actually works to harm you. Well, I'll answer that in my response. Then she says you are deliberately misrepresenting the theory of evolution. Okay, but we did correctly represent it. 
you would be more productive arguing against what evolutionists actually believe, not a convenient straw man. Again, I guess she's saying that the evolution of the wolf into a whale, wolf-like creature into a whale, is a straw man. Then she says every theory is questioned, and it should be. That is how science stands the test of time. It evolves. Using straw man arguments like the wolf-whale analogy is not productive. Maybe you should read a decent book on evolution so you can make an actual argument. So my response to her is, you contend that I do not understand the theory of evolution by saying that I got a wolf-like creature confused with a wolf and not the wolf and whale's common ancestor. However, it's obvious that I am referring to the common ancestor, which is why I said wolf-like creature a term used by many evolutionists on this topic, instead of the term wolf. So I'm not sure what is confusing you about this. Do you think that the evolution of the whale is not a good analogy of evolution itself? About your description of the sunlight remark, it would be more correct to say that macroevolution cannot be true because it violates the second law of thermodynamics. Do you remember that discussion that we had, Kirk, about the second law of thermodynamics? Yes, I do. And you were the one that brought up this idea of just sunlight hitting you doesn't help anything. Because, of course, that's the answer that evolutionists typically get as to why evolution doesn't violate the second law of thermodynamics, even when it seems at face value that it does. They will yeah, say, they, they say that it's, a, well, it, the Earth is an open system, and the energy right. and the light or whatever from the sun, you know, can change uh, how the second law of thermodynamics works, but I've never right. heard anybody explain to me exactly how sunlight can do that. <laughs> right, that's right. And of course, they don't have any explanation. So I say that even in the case of an open system like the Earth, because a supply of energy such as sunlight is not sufficient to generate new genetic information, because of course, that's what you have to have to have macroevolution. You have to have new genetic information. Right. The sunlight analogy that Kirk gave is about how open systems work. It's not about how evolution works. Right. Then I go on to say, please explain how the evolution of the whale is a straw man argument. Are you saying that it is not macroevolution? I have read and continue to read books on evolution and articles by evolutionists. That's why I don't believe in macroevolution, just microevolution. You might be interested in knowing that a study showed that those who scored higher on a test of evolution knowledge were actually less likely to believe it than those who know less about evolution. And that's where the atheist faith comes in. They hear enough about evolution to be convinced by it, and so they believe it in a, as a faith-based religious way. Yet, if you learn more about how evolution works and how microbiology works, the explanations just don't fit, and so you really can't believe it based on the science, which is why intelligent design has become so popular among researchers. Right. So I, finish, I just finish off by saying, so far, not only have you not shown that we do not understand evolution, but you still have not shown that you understand our arguments. Perhaps you should read a book about intelligent design. Right. Boy, I, I have to apologize for my printer here. It really did uh, screw this print up I have here out. It not only didn't give us didn't give me Callie's original email, but it cut the last couple paragraphs of your answer off. Oh, too bad. So I must have had something set wrong there. 
right. technology is wonderful when it works, but when it doesn't, it's a bear. <laughs> so thanks for filling that gap in. No problem. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Uh, how about if we go on to our topic today then? That'd be great. Our uh, topic today is uh, worldviews. Um, if you haven't thought about this, it's a pretty important topic that most people really don't give much thought to, I don't think, but they really need to. So we're going to give you a, uh, a little introduction to the idea of a worldview, what it is, how you come up with it, and how you probably have one without even realizing it. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that they do have a worldview. And I guess one way of describing a worldview is your philosophy of life. It's just the way you think about things. It's the way you look at things. Right. And we've talked about the Christian worldview and how much better it is for human beings to have a Christian worldview and for societies to be built upon the Christian worldview. So that's why I thought we should get a little more in-depth into just what a worldview is and how they're developed and what the differences are between the different worldviews. Right. And of course, uh, we want to focus on what a biblical foundation for your worldview would be. And uh, I can start out here. We have a couple of Bible verses that kind of pertain to this idea. If I could uh, start out with that, in Psalm 10, verse 4, it says, In his pride the wicked man does not seek him, meaning God. In all his thoughts there is no room for God. Mm. Now that's a worldview that excludes God. Absolutely. Which, which yes, uh, we contend is a problem. Another verse uh, pertinent to this is in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 14, where it says, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Right. So these two verses, Kirk, really go to show the difference between Christian worldview and a non-Christian worldview. There's a huge difference. Right. Unless God works in someone's heart, he'll remain enslaved to his old ways of thinking. It just, Christianity just doesn't make any sense to him. Right. And there's just no room for God in a person's life unless they are reborn, unless the Holy Spirit touches their hearts. There has to be a willingness there to know who God is before you can really get any information about him. Right. Yep, it has to be an openness to God and to the Holy Spirit. So Christians and non-Christians really live in two different worlds with different worldviews. And non-Christians will, because they don't believe in this biblical foundation that we'll be showing today, they will develop many other types of man-based, man-centered worldviews. Right. So. Okay. Uh, here's another pertinent verse also from the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. It says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Yeah, so this shows the Christian's viewpoint, the Christian follower who has this biblical worldview, how important it is to control one's thoughts and to change one's thoughts from the old ways to the Christian worldview. Right. So changing our minds and the way we think is very much a part of being a Christian disciple of following Christ. Right. So in order to do that, you have to know the Bible. 
Now, do you remember last week, Kirk, we mentioned that research that showed that if you read the Bible several times a week, it will change your beliefs and your behavior. It makes you into a better person. Right. And when we have a society filled with better people, they create better families, they create better businesses, better local governments, better societies, and better total governments, state governments, and federal governments. Right. We spoke about that quite a bit last week. Now, another point in this verse is recognizing that we have to demolish the arguments of the opposing worldviews, what it describes as arguments and pretensions that sets themselves up against the knowledge of God. So, Satan is using arguments to try to deceive us. He's using other worldviews to try to convince us that his ways are the best. And if you notice from this verse, there's no neutral ground. Right. It says we have to take captive every thought. Right. So there are no thoughts that you can have as a Christian that you can't that that you should not realign with Christianity, that you should just leave, and those thoughts, those ideas, those ways of thinking, those are not really so important. Don't worry about those. No, in fact, every thought, every idea that you have as a Christian ought to be brought under the control of this Christian worldview. So, if you think that, hey, what I do for entertainment, that has nothing to do with God, I don't need to worry about that. What I do at work, that's nothing to do with God or Christianity. That's right. simply not true. There's no neutral ground. Right. Well, that's almost like saying you, you can't have one foot in one worldview and one foot in another worldview. That's right. You're going to have problems. <laughs> that's right. And many people do without realizing it. Oh, yeah. They, they say they're Christians, and they say they hold a Christian worldview, but then if you actually examine what their worldview, what their ideas are, their thoughts about different areas, you'll find out that what has happened is that a lot of these arguments from other worldviews have crept in when they've gone to school, when they've watched movies, when they've read something in the press or in a novel. And they, these ideas from other worldviews will creep in, and without realizing it, we're agreeing with some other non-biblical worldview and even maybe behaving that way. Right. Okay, for any uh, listeners that might have just joined us, uh, this is Evidence for Faith, and I'm Kirk Hastings. And I'm Keith Kendricks. And we're discussing worldviews, and particularly a biblical worldview. Uh, I have another verse here that uh, also uh, relates to what you're saying here. In Galatians chapter 4, uh, verse 9. Uh, in the New Testament, it says, But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? This was Paul apparently speaking to people who, even in, in his time, had become Christians, but then were kind of falling back into their old worldviews again. Exactly. So, again, this shows this battle between these different worldviews, that when you become a Christian, you can be influenced by the old ways that you left, the old ideas. And so, what's happening when you become a Christian is that you're slowly being transformed, and one of the major ways that the Holy Spirit transformed you is in your mind, in the way you think. Sure. And so, you don't want to be 
you know, re-enslaved by the old thought patterns. You want to be looking forward and continually becoming transformed into the likeness of Christ. And one of the main ways that that happens is through the mind. Oh, so, and it's it's so easy to be uh, influenced today because the the media is so prevalent in our life. It's everywhere you turn. You're getting bombarded by uh, our mass media's idea, their worldview, in effect, which is a uh, generally a secular worldview. Yeah, exactly, and it really does enslave people. You know, this verse really points out the freedom that there is in Christianity mentally and behaviorally. There's another verse that says, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Right. Meaning that this freedom that we have is one of the main points of becoming a Christian, being mentally free from all of this, these ideas and these attitudes that enslave you. And, you know, we've talked in the past, Kirk, you remember about studies that showed where they will take these non-Christian concepts, they will have people read a paragraph that tells them that these non-Christian concepts are true and then monitor their behavior and they, those who read those paragraphs will actually behave worse. They're more likely to steal, they're more likely to lie, to cheat on tests, they're more likely to be unkind to strangers. Right. So these worldviews are very important and we have to constantly be battling or we will become enslaved again by those old ways. Well, I like the way this uh, the verse in Galatians puts that when it refers to all those things you just mentioned by calling them weak and miserable principles. Absolutely. <laughs> now, I've got a great quote, and I should mention, too, that we're following along. I've been studying worldviews for many, many years, and I've taught worldview in Sunday school through the Understanding the Times curriculum, and many people will know about that, but if you want more information about what we're studying, you can look that up, Understanding the Times by David Noble. And I'm also using as an outline today some of the information from a Worldview Basic Training by Daniel Smithwick, and that's very helpful. So one of the quotes that he has I thought would be important today, it's from Cardinal John Henry Newman. Now, he lived in the 1800s, born 1801 and and died in 1890, born in London, and he was educated in Oxford, very influential theologian of the Victorian age in England, and author of a couple of books that people will recognize, Essays on the Development of Christian Doctrine and Idea of a University. So here's his quote talking about these worldview issues. He says, O wisdom of the world! and strength of the world, what are you when matched beside the foolishness and the weakness of the Christian? You are great in resources, manifold in methods, hopeful in prospects, but one thing you have not, and that is peace. You are always tumultuous, restless, apprehensive. You have nothing you can rely on. You have no rock under your feet. The humblest, feeblest Christian has that which is impossible to you. Wow. So, very powerful statement about the differences between the Christian worldview and non-biblical worldviews, which, like he says, you know, they, they re- it really does look like foolishness to them, you know, and hey, I remember those days. I thought 
that believing in uh, UFOs made sense. And today you hear top PhD scientists, you know, saying that they think that life could have come from UFOs. Yeah, that's amazing that he wrote that uh, quote that you just read uh, back in the 1800s, and yet it sounds like it came out of yesterday's newspaper. Yeah, talking about restless, apprehensive for- people that. Uh, have no peace, and it's it's just describing modern society. Right. It's been the same for the past 2,000 years. Yeah. Okay, uh, I have another uh, Bible quote here from the New Testament. Uh, let me read that. It's from the book of Romans, uh, chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Uh, it says here, the Apostle Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Wow. Yeah, that's a very strong verse, and one that I like to show people because it really does describe the situation of the non-Christian worldview. They, even though they know deep down and logic and everything in the fiber, the core of their being, tells them that God does exist, it's obvious. And people instinctively recognize the design features that are all around them when they see a butterfly wing, when they see a beautiful flower unfolding, sure. when they see you know, the sunset, they really do know that God exists, but they have to squash that. They have to suppress that because of their wickedness. Most children instinctively understand that, you know, when you tell them that God created these things, they just take that for granted. They don't have any problem with that. Absolutely. It's very natural. And it's very interesting. Uh, I just read an interview uh, the other day on the internet with Richard Dawkins, who was one of the biggest proponents of evolution today. And Mm. someone asked him a question and said, if you had one question that you could ask God, what would you ask him? And his response was, I would ask him why he didn't make himself more plain. Oh. (laughs) Now, contrast that to this verse we just read from the New Testament, where it says that God is plain. (laughs) Right. And, of course, we know because we know the arguments for God's existence, and they are very plain. They're simple, straightforward logic. Right. But, you know, fallen men have to invent something else to replace God. So they have these man-centered worldviews that fill that niche. They provide a framework of ideas and thought that help a fallen person, a non-Christian, to believe that their system is true. And kind of as a side benefit, it also allows them to do the, uh, to behave in the ways that they want to behave and that they know deep down inside that God would condemn them for. Oh, I think it has a lot to do with that. Yes. Well, in fact, we've even had examples of quotations from evolutionists and atheists admitting to this, that that is really the reason why they are atheists. Right, right, that they have a problem with the moral standards in the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Okay, here's another interesting verse, this one from the Old Testament that relates to the idea of a Christian worldview. Uh, It's from the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, where uh, 
Isaiah is quoting God where he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Yeah, once again, just saying that there is a difference between the non-Christian way of thinking and the Christian way of thinking. So, when you come to Christ, when you become a Christian, it means that you have to learn to think and behave in new ways. Right. And what that really means is that you need a new worldview. You have to deconstruct that assemblage of, uh, you know, roughly hewn timbers that are stuck together with chewing gum and bailing wire. Right. And you have to construct a solid foundation based on the you know basic concepts of philosophy and religion and then build the rest of the structure on top of that and then you get a successful worldview that can make a difference in people's lives right Whew, interesting okay uh here's another verse from uh, hosea in the old testament where he's talking about uh some of the uh consequences of believing in a secular worldview, believe it or not. He Mm. addressed this idea thousands of years ago. It's in chapter 10, verses 12 to 13, and he says, Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. But you have planted wickedness. You have reaped evil. You have eaten the fruit of deception. Because you have depended on your own strength and on your many warriors. Mm. Yeah, this is a great verse. And again, it just shows us that we need to, you know, it uses this metaphor of planting. So we need to plow up the old bad ideas and plant new ideas and new behaviors, new ways of behaving in our lives based on truth instead of our own lies. Right. So you see how it mentions about that you have eaten the fruit of deception. So you can think about it as this cosmic battle going on. And we tend, and you know, when somebody makes a great motion picture, many times it's about the battle of good versus evil. So right. say the Harry Potter series or Star Wars. Those were basically talking about the battle between good and evil. But what this verse is showing us is that behind the good and evil, there's something deeper still. And that is the truth versus a lie. And if you believe the truth, you're much more likely to act in a moral way. If you believe a lie, you're much more likely to act in an immoral way. And if you think about it, Kirk, just about every wrong thing that you can think of doing, it comes from a lie. It comes from some form of deception causes you to act in that immoral way. Right. It promises so, you something that it, in the end, doesn't deliver. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Okay, here's another verse in uh, the book of Titus in the Old Testament, which relates to what we're talking about here, about a biblical foundation for your worldview. Uh, In this verse it says, For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group, which I uh, assume he's talking about um, non-Jews at the time. 
Uh, he says they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things that they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Boy, does that sound like our modern media. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, here again, this is Paul's letter to Titus, and he's talking about those Christians who were beginning to get pulled away by what were called Judaizers or the circumcision group. They were saying that no... Even though you're a Christian now, you have to go back to the old ways. You have to go back to following the laws of the Old Testament, even the ceremonial laws, which, of course, wasn't true. I oh, right. Verse- uh, I, I should correct that I, I said that that was from the Old Testament. That that verse is from the New Testament. That was That's a right. little mistake yep. of mine. See, I'm not perfect either. That's all right. <laughs> so we, um, we have to take action to counter the ideas of other worldviews. Now, in our case, we're not so worried about the circumcision group. They're not a bunch of Christians going around saying that you have to follow the all of the Old Testament laws, right. but there is a huge amount of secularization going on, and our society is really becoming more and more secular, and with people deliberately trying to secularize it yeah. and using their office or their jobs, if they're writers or movie makers or in government, they're trying to make the world a, a secular place. So really, generations to come are depending on what kind of culture we leave them. A, a Christian, a Judeo-Christian culture built the greatest nation on earth and uplifted most of the rest of the world out of poverty. And you know, if it's so easy to slide back into that if we don't maintain a Christian worldview. Yeah, that reminds me of one of the major lies um, that's used to secularize our culture today, is many people insist that we have to be neutral as far as religion is concerned. Mm, but there yeah. really is no such thing as being neutral as far as that's concerned. That's right. And, you know, it's really just a way to silence the religious people. I mean, in the United States, they think that you should not teach religion in school. But yet, almost all of the rest of the world does teach religion in school. Yes. And they, and they have no problem with it. And increasingly Even, so in countries like Russia and the, uh, the former Soviet countries, where for years they weren't allowed to teach it. That's right. Yep. So it was the only, you know, overtly atheistic countries that didn't teach religion. But many of the more secular European countries, they do teach religion. They do teach philosophy at a young age. Here in the United States, we don't teach religion, we don't teach philosophy, and what happens is we have children who are extremely uneducated, and they're unaware of what's going on religiously or philosophically in their world, and so they are easy prey for people who want to manipulate them can easily do it because they haven't faced some of the basic arguments and looked at the basic worldviews. They've really been given a very narrow worldview and told that there is no other view but this. That's right. And it's it's a very bad education. They're just uneducated. Yep. But that's what the churches need to do. The churches and radio programs like this need to step in and help our kids understand what the arguments are for in religion and in philosophy. Right. Well, if you are just joining us, this is the Evidence for Faith radio program, and I'm Kirk Hastings. And I'm Keith Kendricks. 
and we are talking about a biblical worldview. Uh, Keith, how about if we get into the uh, the definition of exactly what a worldview is? We've talked about a okay. biblical worldview. How about if we uh, get into the idea of what a worldview actually is and what the other worldviews are that are out there? All right. Well, a worldview is a system or a collection of beliefs or ideas that are related to each other. They're based on the connection that they have to answers that one gives to the basic questions of life. So the basic questions of life form a kind of a foundation for a person's worldview, and then all of the rest of the ideas that they have about issues in life are built upon those and they're connected together and they help support each other. So if a person has a different foundation and some of those foundational questions might be, what is God? Okay. Okay. Or what is mankind? Right. What is the purpose of life? Those kind of basic questions that we all kind of wonder about or, or maybe think about when we get to our first, you know, introduction to philosophy class. Right. Those kinds of basic questions provide a foundation. So depending on how we answer them lays a certain da- certain type of foundation. And then all the rest of the beliefs that we have are built up upon those. So beliefs that we have about religion, beliefs that we have about society, what makes a good society, ideas about economics, politics, and, and, and many other areas are all built upon that framework or that foundation. I've, I've got a quote here from Dr. David Noble, who wrote Understanding the Times, and he's also the head of Summit Ministries, and I recommend people go to the training programs on Christian worldview that they have and send your young people there to prepare them for what they're learning in high school and college. Here's a quote that he says about what is a worldview. He says, the term worldview refers to any ideology philosophy, theology, movement, or religion that provides an overarching approach to understanding God, the world, and man's relations to God and the world. Specifically, a worldview should contain a particular perspective regarding each of the following ten disciplines, theology, philosophy, ethics, biology, psychology, sociology, law, politics, economics, and history. Wow, that's a great list. Yeah, so that's a fabulous definition. And again, he mentions, you know, these basic ideas that are the foundation. Who is God? You know, is there a God? Who is man? How do they relate? And then you build all these other things on top of it. Right. Here's another quote from Dr. Ronald Nash. He's the author of the book Worldviews in Conflict. And he says, in simplest terms, a worldview is a set of beliefs— about the most important issues in life. It is sadly ironic that the basic features of the naturalistic worldview, which so many people in the formerly Marxist nations are now rejecting, remain attractive to great numbers of educated people in the West. One major reason for this, I am convinced, is that few Americans have been taught to think in terms of worldviews. They do not know what a worldview is, They could not spell out the content of their own worldview if their lives depended on it. They are unaware of how various aspects of conflicting worldviews clash logically. 
Well, that's really interesting. That that brings to my mind. You remember? I don't know if he still does it or not, but um, uh, the Jay Leno on the uh, Tonight Show will often go out of his studio and uh, walk on the street outside uh, his studio in New York City, and right. he'll ask people on the street different questions, mm-hmm. like you know, what is the Thirteenth Amendment or something like that. Uh, I can see him going out and asking the question, what is your worldview? And I wonder the interesting responses that he would get. Yeah, people, I'm sure, wouldn't really know even what the definition of a worldview is. So at least maybe we've helped some people in that to realize that even though you may not know what it is, you actually do have a worldview. You know, you if you say, well, I don't really have any particular philosophy, that itself is the background for a worldview. So the average, especially amongst Christians, this is really bad. You know, they just, Christians just tend to give little thought about this conflict that's going on in the world of ideas. There, And there really is a battle, as we saw in many of the verses that you read. Oh, yes. You know, over time, a lot of anti-Christian ideas have gained dominance they gain dominance in the universities and seminaries, and then this kind of filtered down into the mainline denominations so that they started adopting non-Christian ideas. And that's why we had such a falling away the past 150 years or so of liberal churches, denominations, because they didn't realize what was going on. All these non-Christian ideas were coming in. And you know, they've really things. been duped by these secularistic ideas that mm-hmm. the media is pushing at them, and they've come to the point where they've decided, oh, these sound like they make more sense than our worldview, so we're going to switch to the other one. That's right. You know, I, I liken it to people building a building that they think is their own. So, say you're building a house, and unbeknownst to you, at the other end of the building— Somebody is building a warehouse, not a, not a house for you to live in, but a warehouse to store things in. Right. So what happens is, you know, you don't realize all these things are going on until the two ends start to try to join up. Right. And now you've got a problem. You know, so, I've, I've actually, I just read something the other day on the internet that, uh, an interesting story that, and you don't hear this very often. But it was actually a common thing in the Old West when they were laying tracks for the railroads. Okay. They would often start in two different towns, and the track layers would head toward a certain point. And, of course, the idea was to match up at that point. Sure. It said you would be surprised how many times they did that, and they'd get to that point, and the tracks were not in line with e- with, with each other, and they'd have to rearrange things to make them fit. <laughs> Right. And, and that's so what's happening then is your worldview, somebody else is building your house. You think you're getting a house built up on the Bible and maybe the church you attend and the Christian friends that you have. But in reality, people from work and the media and books that you're reading, movies that you're seeing, they're building into your life also. And it's for a completely different pers- purpose. Right. So now you look at the things that don't match up and you say, you know what, this building is really three quarters warehouse. I guess I'll forget about the residential part of it and just convert the whole thing into a warehouse. Right. So 
people wind up leaving the faith, and that's really what happened to the mainland uh, mainline denominations. Yep. So, and we see it happening more and more as secularism seeps into the culture. I see this almost every day in the newspaper of how some other church denomination has decided to throw some biblical standard out the window that they've had since the beginning, and they've decided, okay, this isn't good enough anymore, we're getting rid of it. Yeah, that's right. And why? Because it doesn't fit into their worldview. So Christians have to learn about the Christian worldview, you know, to really effectively counter this secularism that we're seeing. Yes, definitely. Well, can you tell us some of the major elements of the worldview? Give us some of the basics. All right. So we heard from those definitions that I read, a a few of them, but, but really major elements would be God, reality, knowledge, ethics, man. So about God, let's say. A worldview will answer, does God exist? Right. If he does exist, what's he like? Has he spoken? Right. And that, I think, is if there's a foundation of foundations, this one, does God exist, is really the most foundational because the most depends on it. And the most will be different depending on if you answer yes or no. Certainly. But then the second most foundational question is, has God spoken? Because there are lots of worldviews where God exists but he hasn't said anything to us. He hasn't tried to reach out to us to teach us anything or tell us what he expects. Right. So that, again, is a big watershed. Has God spoken or not? And I, I love the title of one of Francis Schaeffer's books on worldviews. Francis Schaeffer was one of the early people talking about the fact that we're losing our Christian worldview. And right. it, it's called, He is There and He is Not Silent. Yes, so addressing that. these two crucial issues, does God exist and has he spoken? Right. Well, in addition to God, there's the issues about reality. What's reality like? What is real? Right. Is there purpose to life? Are miracles possible? And again, how you answer these questions affects the your worldview. Definitely. What, what about knowledge? We see this today a lot about truth. Is truth relative? Is truth objective? Can you even know anything about God, or do you just have to believe in blind faith? Are faith and reason compatible? Yep. So all these questions that deal with the in the area of knowledge, those are what a worldview will answer, and the answers become your worldview. Ethics in the area of ethics. Are there moral laws? Okay. Are there objective morals, or is it just subjective? Right. If there are moral laws, are they the same for everybody, or are they different for different cultures? Right. In the area of mankind, human beings, what are we like? Do we have free will? You know, this is a hot topic today. We were, yes, it is. We had some friends over for dinner on Thursday, and their daughter had just graduated from Hamilton High School in New Jersey, and she said that the kids and the the teachers there really don't believe that people have free will. <laughs> and this is sad because studies, many repeated studies have shown that if you don't believe you have free will, you will behave badly, more likely to steal. You're more likely to cause harm to others. So it's really a bad idea. You know, but other issues about man, does man have a soul? You know, do we have a soul? Is there a mind there, or is it just chemical processes? How's our mind and our body related? 
Right. What happens when we die? Yeah. You know, is there a heaven? Is hell real? So all of these questions go to uh, make up your worldview. Very interesting. Well, you know, if you're if you're uh, paying attention to those questions, you're well on your way to forming a worldview. But that's it's, right. You know, it, it's amazing. I know a number of people who, uh, for lack of a better explanation, just seem too lazy to even worry about trying to figure out these questions. They just assume, well, you know, there's no way to figure these things out, so I'm not even going to try, and they don't. Yeah, although if you pin them down, I think you'll find that actually they do have some kind of answer. You're probably uh, right. You know, and yeah. you know, you can if if not, you can examine the top part. If you don't know about the foundations, look at the top part and see how it's built and it'll tell you what the foundation underneath it is like. Is your foundation built on man's ideas or is it built on the Bible? Right. Well, we're just about running out of time here. Uh, I assume that we're going to continue to talk about this worldview uh, idea in future shows. Let's do that. Yep, because there's there's definitely more material that we can cover on this. We've really kind of scratched the surface here. Absolutely. Yeah, next week we'll get into what's a Christian worldview. Okay, sounds good. I'll be here for that. (laughs) Great. All right. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith. Uh, if you'd like to send any comments or questions to us, you can email us at email at evidence4faith.com and join us again for our next program. And always remember, the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.